A quick fact before we get into today's episode. There are less than 10,000 bilbies left in Australia. 10,000? I had no idea it was so few. Which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Daryl Lee milk chocolate bilby this Easter. The good folks at Daryl Lee will again donate 20 cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Daryl Lee bilby for mum. Buy one for the kids, buy one for your Uncle Steve, and help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more Bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. To show our support for International Women's Day, we've put together this special episode. In it, five amazing women, Lane Beachley, Anya Hindmarch, Kate McClymont, Julia Gillard and Mary Chiarella each tell a story prompted by the Five of My Life Challenge. Entertaining and enlightening, these leaders who have dominated across the varied worlds of sport, fashion, journalism, politics and nursing serve as an inspiration to us all, whatever your gender. World surfing champion Lane Beachley talks about her film. We're going to start with your film. Now, oh, yes. Now, you've chosen the second Austin Powers film, The, the Spy That Shagged Me. It's very shagadelic, I, 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 The rumour is that they're going to make a fourth one, and it's oh. called uh, For Your Thighs Only. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? That's gold. <laughs> so, so before you, you tell us uh, why you chose it, mm. uh, tell, tell me what you like about the film or, or what you don't like about the film. Why did I choose The Spy Who Shagged Me? Well, do I make you randy, baby? Do I? <laughs> I, I love the, the humour. I love the characters. And one of my favourite characters in that film was Fat Bastard. Yep. And um, I happened to watch that film, I think, seven times. Wow. To the point where I could recite the film from beginning to end. All the different characters, <laughs> all the different lines. Is it Heather Graham? Yes. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Felicity yeah. Shagwell. Yeah. Shagwell by name, shag very well by reputation, baby. <laughs> and then there's someone in it with my maiden name. It's awful. My, my Apologies. Uh, my maiden name was Spit. My married name is Swallow or right. something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he does that look to camera. Yeah. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's just, there was a whole lot of um, hilarious moments in that film. but And also why I chose it was because... I think I actually, no. I was thinking it, that was the the movie that I went on my second date with my husband, but it was the third Austin Powers film that I went on my ah, second date. 
Okay. With my husband, my future husband, but now husband. Um, so, but yeah. So this, this was 90. This, this was is 1999. So you were on your, your second I was world. Competing for my second world title, which happened to be my most challenging world title. And, and, and why was that? Well, as you'll see with a lot of athletes or teams who are attempting to repeat success, there seems to be this insurmountable amount of expectation and pressure on our shoulders. And no one's responsible more than ourselves yeah. for when we start to take that on. And, and I just took that on as being, okay, now I'm number one in the world. All of a sudden, I have to be twice as good as sure. what I was six months ago to repeat that success and deserve that success. I won six in a row and then had two years where I missed it because for a variety of reasons, one, great competition, two, severe injuries, yeah. and then came back and won my seventh one in 2006. Bloody good on you. I was you. 34 years old. Competing against <laughs> girls that weren't even born when I started touring. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> Disrespectful little things they can do. Yeah. What, what part of the world was the second world championship in? Well, it's a points accumulation. So I was competing ah, all so over you, the so world. You, so you do, you, you add it up over. You, started you can, in You can tell I know fuck all about surfing, don't you? <laughs> That's obvious. It's rather insulting. I can't believe, you know, you, you show me these notes and you pretend you've been reading you, all about, about me, surfing. but not about my career, obviously. <laughs> so let me fill you in. Yeah. I won my first world title in 1998. My second one, 99. Third one, 2000. And on we went. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I remember when that first Awesome Powers film came out, I didn't quite get it because yep. I, I was very serious, a very serious, focused, determined athlete. Sure. And had the compassion of a tiger shark for myself and others. Yeah. And so when the second one came out, I got it. Mm. You know, I watched the first one a couple of times, went, okay, now I get it. It's actually just satire yep. and it's supposed to be funny. And then when the second came out, one came out, I just loved Fat Bastard and Dr. Evil and Mini Me and, yep. uh, and just the way that Mike Myers creates these characters based on his own personal experiences with family yep. was, it's, it's just hilarious. So I just loved it and fell in love with it. And that's why I had to watch it so often. It's got a sensational soundtrack as well it does actually and, and it's got it's got any um uh cameos from from really mm. brilliant musical that's got elvis costello yes. and uh willie nelson and burt baccarat yeah, yeah, so, Baccara. <laughs> yeah. so that was in 1999 yeah um the book that you've chosen was well uh, actually i didn't tell you why i chose the film Oh, well then, please, crack ahead. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure you're running this program? Yes. You no, no, you to... take over late. It's yours. Do it. Do it. <laughs> the reason I chose this film was because it helped me win my second world title. Tell me more. Well, as I was saying, that insurmountable amount of pressure and expectation I was experiencing led to me pushing myself too hard. And that resulted in a severe knee injury during or right in the lead up to the US Open, which is about the fifth event of right. the year. And I had started to lose my sense of um, connection with the world title because I was having really inconsistent results, which is ultimately a, a result of inconsistent mindset mm -hmm. and thought processes. And then what happened was I was in free surfing down at Trestles one afternoon and I did a manoeuvre that pushed me too far and I tore my medial ligament in my right knee. Mm. And so I was pretty much out for the next couple of events. I was supposed to stay out for six weeks. I stayed out for 10 days and then surfed in the US Open, didn't perform that well, but then went over to the UK, Yep. And which you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I went and surfed at a place called Newquay. Yes. And Not Fistral Beach. No, yes, Fistral Beach yep. and cold and small, standard. And so in between every heat, I would come in and put ice and a TENS machine on my knee and I'd have my foot elevated, did the whole rice thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> rest, yeah. ice, compression, elevation, and just managed to progress my way through heat after heat after heat. And I was surfing with a big 
um, carbon kind of knee brace on as well. Right. So it was a real challenging time. But it was the, at the time, it was the richest event in the world. And it was offering $20,000 US prize money for, number, for first place, which is almost half of what I would earn in a year anyway. Sure. <laughs> so I was going after it. And I also needed this result to propel me back into first place on the tour ranking so I could defend my world title. Yes. So I made the final. And I could see we had been at the beach since seven o'clock that morning, and the final, due to summer and the sun being high, uh, the final didn't surf till about five or six, maybe even seven o'clock that night. So we'd been at the beach all day, and I remember walking down to the final. I looked at my competitor, and her eyes were bulging out of her head. She was exhausted, as was I. Mm-hmm. But I also got this hint that she had her eyes on the prize. She had her eyes on getting that money, and so I used the words of fat bastard <laughs> to distract me from thinking about winning to make sure that I stayed focused on the processes that I needed right. to follow to perform at my best because when I perform at my best, I'm going to win. Yeah. And so I remember paddling around in the water looking at her and just going, you can keep your money. I want your baby. <laughs> I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, ribs, chillies, baby back, ribs. And so I just started reciting Fat right. Bastard to distract me from the fact that I'm competing for a final and, and a win and 20,000 US, but I want the win, I don't want the prize money. Yeah. Um, and so it was just a really healthy distraction to keep me. That's a sensational story. I went on and won. And the thing was in the UK, they actually had to go and raid all the banks to get the cash, to pay me in cash. And they paid me $3,000 in $1 bills. <laughs> so I had this wad of cash that I ended up traveling through rich. Europe with. I felt loaded. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I had to just kind of money launder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had to carry all this cash around yeah. with me for several months as I went around the tour. And then ultimately I, that win gave me the confidence to then change my direction a little bit, work on my equipment a little bit more, and then I ultimately won my second world title in Hawaii later that year. And Mike Myers would yes. have no idea no, the, the, <laughs> the impact he's had. wouldn't have any idea. <laughs> Global fashion icon Anya Hindmarch talks about her book. We're moving from children's fiction to, I mean, I'm, I'm loath to call it this, but adult self-help. You have chosen a book written <laughs> in 1978 <laughs> by Shakti Gawain, if I've pronounced that name, the lady's name correctly, Creative Visualizations. It's a pioneering classic, sold 7 million copies. Tell me about it and why you've chosen it. Um, this is a book, and I will confess that I haven't really actually read. Um, it's a book that um, I love the kind of the spark notes of. Um, it's a book it's a, well it's a philosophy ultimately that I I really believe in and share with a great friend of mine Natalie Massonet who started um, Netta Porter who's a brilliant brilliant woman um, and she and I sort of bonded over this book because the, the premise ultimately is that um, you know if you believe and and um, creatively visualize what what you would like to happen so maybe it's a um, a work ambition or it's a, a personal ambition or it's um, some for me I used to be very 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 scared of public speaking right. and um, and so the idea of standing up and and doing that was just it was unthinkable I couldn't just couldn't get through my fear and um, someone once taught me that in fact if you visualize if you if you imagine you're standing on the podium and you're imagining all the faces looking at you and and you're you're seeing it going well and you actually you visualize what you would like to happen right so you it almost a it takes the fear away because almost it opens all your neural pathways and you're actually um you are you've kind of almost done it actually mm-hmm. is the point so you've sort of it, it makes that whole process a lot easier um and so and i think if you apply that to to all sorts of things so maybe you you know you want to um you know achieve something um so recently we've just bought our business 
business back, for example. And in my my dream during that process, what I really wanted to do was there's a picture behind me on the wall, which is a, a lovely Margaret Calvert of, of a, a sign of a, a, a women at work. So mm. the, the road sign of men at work, but a women at work one. And my absolute thing was I'm going to put that back on my wall and I'm going to take back my business. And um, and so, you know, visualising that actually is much more likely to make it happen. So you're sort of concretely actually saying, these are my ambitions, and therefore you're working very much and very clearly and coherently towards an aim, as opposed to sort of slightly kind of following a, a, a windy road. So I do think that if you're quite concrete about saying, I would like to achieve this, hmm. not in a sort of a you know, silly way, but in a in a kind of as a as a nice sort of good clear. I think it's possible, and I want to do it. Um, it's much more likely to happen. So that book is about is about that um, that premise, and I think uh, it's it's a good way of thinking actually. So that makes you very focused on actually what you're trying to achieve. It's interesting with uh, some of those self help books or in that genre. Some of them uh, a bit like you you needn't feel they're the best book out there but you can take the message and some of them you don't need like this one you don't need to read the book to get it so there's one i read ages ago and it was like it's like feel the fear and do it anyway and you go got it i mean i don't need to read 300 pages of examples you're probably going to say feel the fear and do it anyway that's not a bad thing to do and uh, that's quite helpful I, I mean i so agree i think um i mean you know a lot of them are quite cheesy frankly and um and yet i think you always get one thing um from it it just helps you and also it's taking time to stop and think i think it's part of the process as well there's a book i read ages ago which was actually about um it's called the one minute manager a very yes, famous yeah. series of books and it's the idea of delegation it's talking about the monkey as the, as the task if you like and it's about not having the monkey half on your back and half on someone else's back so if you give a task would you be kind of to do x give it to them fully give them a time frame and leave them with that monkey but don't leave half it on your backs and they can't do the job and you can't let go of it. and very simple things like that that really helped me when i was starting the business and um so lots of those things so actually i quite enjoy reading those sorts of books i mean grazing them i will be honest um and i often find because i think i'm sort of exhausted half the time and busy that it's quite difficult to sort of sink into a sort of a novel and somehow i find sort of grazing these books is actually quite a nice way to relax but without giving too much time i, I find i'm so sort of um uh, it's, it's hard to, to wind down and actually really mm. have the time to sort of get sunk into a good book. I do this on holiday. Uh, I will move away from self-help. You'll be pleased to know on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen, that there's, a, there's a lady, I was in Texas at the thing called Southwest, and this woman gave this amazing speech that I was lucky enough to be at, but she's written a book and she's done a TED video. But it's about, it's similar to creative visualisation, where, you know, the, 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 the body language that a boxer or a sprinter will do if they win, the, 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 the arms in the air. And this woman, sort of nutty, um, you go, well, if you stand in that victory pose before you're about to do something, you know, you present to your investors or the board or whatever, um, and, and you, you know, quietly in the loo, no one can see you, and you stand like you, you're, you're, a, you're a, when you've just won the Olympic gold medal, and you do that for as little as 10 seconds, and then you walk out in the boardroom, you will be more confident. Now, I, I do quite a lot of public speaking in my life and blah, 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 to sometimes, you know, 7,000 people or whatever, and that can be <laughs> mildly petrifying. And so I thought, do you know what? I'm not going to tell anybody, and it's the first time I've ever mentioned it, but I think I'm going to, I'm just going to try that out for a laugh. It's great. Really it works. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, I'm going to yeah, try out your... I've yeah. actually ordered the book. It didn't arrive in yeah. time, the creative yeah. visualisation. Yeah. So I'm going to... I'll let you know yeah. if it's crap or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think in the same way that with my total fear of public speaking, um, I uh, remember doing something called NLP, which is Neuro Linguistic yes. Programming. Because someone's going to see someone who can teach you how to do speeches and blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, this friend happened to, to be 
someone who would coach people doing public speaking. I had to do this big speech. But also, actually, his process was as an LP. And, and actually, that was fascinating. And so that's the, the idea of actually your brain. I'm so clever, your brain. You can, um, you can actually just switch off fear. So you might have fear on a number of things. For me, I, I used to really sort of hyperventilate. It became a very physical thing, and it was, it was awkward. And, and they trace it back to, to why. And for me, I actually wanted to, to sing professionally. I, I loved classical music, and, and I had a very bad experience. And so I, I just, it, it really halted me. So it take, they take you back over the experience, and they kind of wash it from your brain, effectively, and then they bring you back. And one thing, and so you can approach anything, I think, if you, if you look at things differently. One thing that he taught me, which, which really helped me, was he said, when you're scared, actually being scared is the same emotion as being excited and so um, approach it from a different point of view and, and it's good to have that gremlin on your shoulder saying you're going to screw up you're going to screw up but just actually turn the volume down he's there to protect you turn the volume down and actually just like trust yourself a bit more you know you've done a few things it's sort of okay so there's all sorts of ways to, to, to learn and improve and so um, whilst they're quite cheesy I think you grab one thing from, from each, uh, each idea Australia's leading investigative journalist, Kate McClymont, told us about her song. Now, we're going to uh, go back in time to the 1960s. You have chosen uh, uh, the song that, according to some people, is the most acclaimed song of all time. Oh, that so makes that, me feel a bit cheap. Well, they, oh, you're such a populist, McClymont. I know. <laughs> it's like a Rolling Stone Don't. by Bob Dylan. I have always, um, I've always loved Bob Dylan, except I have walked out of um, uh, a Bob Dylan concert. Um, how often have you seen him? I've seen him twice and never again. Uh, why did you walk out? Well, when I got three quarters of the way through him singing Lay, Lady, Lay, and I suddenly recognised that was the croaky scrawl, he just butchered every song. And I feel sorry for artists because you think, imagine spending your whole life every night playing the same songs, trying to sing them with passion. But I also um, read his autobiography and I found that I really disliked him after ah. I read it. <laughs> and, 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 why, and why is that? Because there's a kind of a, a, a sneering distance about Bob Dylan. And I think, you know, when he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, couldn't you have at least been just one tiny bit, gee, thanks so much, yes, I'll I'll come along and get it. But no, no, he couldn't do that. But okay, forget all that. Going back to Like a Rolling Stone, it is just so full of passion and vitriol and, you know, how does it feel? Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, to be without a home, you know, I just think it's just one of the all-time, you know, great works of, um, you know, lyrical writing, really. It's just so passionate. And, and, and an interesting sort of theme in terms of from from hero to zero. It's, yes, So yes. The, the, the backdrop of that. And if, if I can um, uh, use that to ask you, uh, about some of the work that you do, where the people who are flying high, and then how does it feel you're now heading off to clink uh, because you've been done, <laughs> yes. is um, tell me a, a bit about uh, sort of the lessons that you've learned from your 
your work where you meet these people who, a, a, until they've been rumbled, that they are flying high, and, oh, then, and the, then you know the absolutely worst thing that happened, um, you know, as far as that goes, was that um, um, one of my colleagues and I were writing this, you know, major story about the law firm Keddies and their overcharging of, you know, vulnerable, injured clients. Anyway, so um, we'd spent weeks and weeks working on this and about two days before the story um, goes to air, I find out my new next-door neighbour is one of the partners of Keddies. Ouch. So we write this story, my new neighbour moves in. As a result of my story, the firm goes down the gurgler, he is bankrupted, he loses his practising certificate. I think he got it, he did get it back again. But sometime later, I was at um, a friend's child's 21st and the next door neighbour's daughter was there and she came up and just said to me, you ruined our lives. You really ruined our lives. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. She said, you're not sorry. And I said, actually, you know what? There are 115 law cases against your father's law firm. I know that this is a hard thing to hear, but sometimes people have to take responsibility for their own actions and they have to look behind who has delivered or who has exposed them. But it happens a lot is that you personally get the blame for what is really the revelation of somebody else's wrongdoing. And I think the very reason they've been able to do those things in the first place often is, you know, a form of, um, you know, they're a sociopath or a narcissist and they sleep really well at night even though they've destroyed other people. But when the tables are turned on them, they never look into themselves for their own bad behaviour. It's always your fault. Would you mind talking a little bit about how your work has affected you and your life view, if at all? Has it made you more cynical about the human race or less cynical or more hopeful? Or, or... No, I, I think that um, I am a perpetual optimist. I'm always looking that um, there's always good. It doesn't make me cynical. I just see it as, you know, the, the wide, um, you know, just the wide horizon of of human nature, and it's populated by some very bad people. So, and I just think that, um, you know, I sort of feel quite blessed, and in sometimes it's a little bit of a burden, but people contact you, you know, I would get at least five emails, calls a day from people saying, please, can you fix this for me? Please, can you fix, you know, what's happening to my, you know, father in an old people's home? I've been robbed by, you know, cryptocurrency um, experts. This new bridge is going to completely ruin our community. And I can't do it all. I, I just can't. And you sort of feel like, you know, I hate letting people down and I hate saying, I'm really sorry. But um, when they're particularly... Um, you know, absolutely crazy or mad, I always say, well, try so-and-so at the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> They'll help you. <laughs> I, I'm interested, Kate. You, you get all these people who uh, contact you saying, could you investigate X, Y, or Z. How do you filter them out? So, so the, the crackpots to the things that actually is worth your valuable focus to 
investigate more? Well, for one, anyone who uses indiscriminate use of capitals, underlining or red writing, or <laughs> exclamation quotes, marks. yes, or quotes um, any biblical reference <laughs> or any psalm in any way straight into the bin. Yeah. But no, usually you develop um, you develop a bit of an ear about what um, what sounds provable. The hardest things is when you get the anonymous um, emails or um, you know, people now contact you via encrypted means, you know, Wicca and things like that. And what they are saying is absolutely sensational. But you know that if you're sued, you don't have that source to go back to because often you need, you need a paper trail, you need something, or you need someone to stand up in court. Every story I do now, I have to think, how am I going to prove this? Um, in court, which is such, you know, a, a terrible situation. But defamation is um, a, a really difficult thing that makes our professional lives hard to do. And I'm not saying that um, people don't have um, a right to sue if they feel suitably aggrieved. But for us, it's really difficult. Now, I'm going to flip this on its head <laughs> and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to look for the silver lining. Have you ever had a tip-off and thought you were on a hot lead and investigated something and then found out that the woman or man was at actually a saint and it was all slander, so you investigated and, and he or she wasn't dodgy. Yes. Excellent. Can, yes. Can, can, you, can you tell me more about that? Well, in fact, um, look, that has happened and often you will find that there is a motivation. There's, there's a motivation every single person that contacts you there is a reason behind it. And often for us, revenge is a fabulous reason because it motivates people to come forward. But they can be totally one-eyed, um, slightly crazy themselves, and they will give you, I won't go into, um, you know, who, who it's happened to because it's unfair to them. But when you look into it, you realise that, in fact, it's your informant mm. that is the one that really you know was was trying to deflect attention away to possibly the only good person in the story so yes that has happened Australia's first female prime minister Julia Gillard talks about her special place now i have to tell you miss gillard that all your choices have been unique because you are a unique individual. But your fourth choice has uh, had one other of my guests that's been similar. So Lane Beachley chose the ocean, and Julia Gillard has chosen the seaside. Uh, define the seaside for me and tell me why you've chosen it. Well, Lane Beachley engages in the ocean in a different way to me. <laughs> you look at it. <laughs> so I think she would say ocean because she's far offshore uh, hunting the perfect wave so that she can ride it with consummate skill and athleticism. Um, that's not me. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so I've used the more humble expression seaside <laughs> uh, because really I'm on the sand uh, looking out. Um, I do I do like to swim in the ocean, but um, more routinely what I do is I like to walk uh, alongside the water and just 
feel the air. I'm a big believer that there is something restorative for uh, your soul, for your body, for everything, if you can get some ocean air. That's the perfect link, Julia, for me to ask you to talk about your Beyond Blue role. Uh, um, you're talking about the restorative effects of a, a walk by the seaside. It is uh, You do wonderful work for Beyond Blue. Would you mind just talking a little bit about that? Yes, I'm the current chair of Beyond Blue. I took that over a few years ago from Jeff Kennett, who, of course, uh, everybody would remember as a Conservative politician, Premier of Victoria. But after his time in politics, he took very seriously mental health. He wanted to make a big difference. Jeff's a very can-do kind of person. And he created uh, Beyond Blue and built it into the organisation it is today. And it's about awareness raising, but also behaviour changing. Um, It's about innovation in services, trying to uh, think up new ways of meeting needs, experimenting with them, then showing what works and then trying to persuade government to bring it to scale. But most people would know Beyond Blue because they or a family member have reached out and used our services as a mental health support. So they might have rung the telephone line and certainly in their hundreds of thousands, Australians are now contacting the coronavirus wellbeing support line or they may have engaged online through the website, been in a chat room, got some resources that they needed. Uh, And so it's all a way of saying we can never address mental health needs unless we're prepared to talk about them and encourage people to reach out for help when they need it. And in this pressurised time, you know, we would all expect, and it's completely understandable, that more people need support than in a more usual cycle in Australia. Yeah, wonderful organisation. Um, we're moving on to the, the, the fifth and last choice, which is uh, typically my favourite one, because it's where people get more personal. I think you have as well. Uh, you have chosen a photograph of your father. Uh, would you mind describing it for us and then telling us why you've chosen it? Sure. The uh, I've got many photos, of course, of my father and mother, but this photo is one of Dad kind of caught... Um, Not unawares, he has obviously had someone call out to him and the photograph's been snapped, but he is at the kitchen sink, he's washing dishes, he's got a tea towel just draped over his shoulder and it says a lot to me about him as a man because that's who he was. Uh, It says a lot to me about... Uh, You know, now I do so much work on gender stereotypes. It says a lot to me about men who don't live confined by those stereotypes. And it says a lot to me about life being about the small moments, not necessarily the grand occasions. I think that's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful possession to have chosen. There's a phrase, if you're going to be it, you need to see it. And the story actually Richard Glover was telling me about the... uh, about the Indian girls and the outcomes are different when they see other female leaders. So like you seeing your dad actually doing washing up that might be in a different environment considered as a gender non-appropriate, whatever else. Well, it's not gender inappropriate if you see your dad doing it. So it's just modelling the right behaviour. And on the, the small things, for me, I, I worry that our media doesn't have the capacity to have balance and perspective and celebrate the victories. And I love the way earlier when you were talking about how far we've come, 
It is possible to acknowledge two things at the same time. There is lots to do. There will always be lots to do. But let's look back at the life of people in the 1300s, the 1600s, the 1800s. You know, we've come a long way. So I I think it's a really lovely message about the small things because in reality, not not many of us can be, you know, JFK or Winston Churchill or Ellen Johnson Salif or, or Julia Gillard. We're, we're just sort of doing the best we can, putting one foot in front of the other. And, and you've been a... You've been a legend, Julia, to come on Five of My Life and be so honest and open and authentic. Thank you. Inspirational nursing leader Mary Chiarella discusses her possession. Your, your uh, possession is uh, your home in Sydney. So yes. First of all, describe where it is, what it is, and then tell us why you've chosen that. It's in Mossman. It sounds terribly grand until it's... My father-in-law bought it for us. He said it was the worst house in the best suburb. Mm. And it was a tiny two-bedroom cottage. But my late, my first late husband, I'm widowed twice, as you know, but my first late husband was a neuros- was an architect. Yeah. So basically, he built the place from scratch. Then he got a job. <laughs> So he stopped building it. Right. And so we lived in this half-built house forever with no architraves, holes between the ceiling and the roof, uh, the walls and the roof, rather, nothing on the walls, no cupboard doors. My friends <laughs> would come and go, oh my God, you know, I've got cupboard doors. <laughs> and and we go to the openings of buildings that Laurie had designed and people go, oh my God, you know, he's so talented. And I go, yes. <laughs> and, I'd, and I'd say to him, put the doors on the cupboard or else I'll invite them home. <laughs> but it was a, it was just a place of absolute joy. And it didn't matter, truly, that right. there weren't any doors on the cupboards. It was just the happiest, most wondrous place. It was, for me, it was like my home, my Jarman, where I grew up, because it was always full of people. And Lorenz was just wonderful. Like, he was loud and noisy and ebullient. And he just took life with both hands. And I was always really glad to slipstream him, but I love being in my home. And so I loved entertaining. He came from a big entertaining family, so did I. So the Italian and the north of England actually gelled very well. It was just always full. You know, the kids came, they brought their friends. It was always just this wondrous place. And then suddenly when Laurie died, he died very suddenly. He had a heart attack and crashed our car. It was a terrible, terrible shock to all of us. It was sort of around the time of the global financial crisis. They they had some financial difficulties at the time. And people started suing me because I was sole executrix of our oh. our estate, or his estate. So you're grieving and you're being sued. Sued two weeks after the first piece of litigation came through. And I thought I might lose the house. Hmm. I, I didn't. I just thought I couldn't bear it, you know, because... Before he died, he knew there was financial difficulties. And he'd said, you know, look, we might lose the house. And I'd say, well, it doesn't matter because we've got each other. Right. It doesn't matter where we are. And then suddenly when I didn't have him, Hmm. it mattered enormously. I managed to save it, mainly through the way that we'd set up the ownership of the house. It came directly to me. It wasn't like half and half. Hmm. So that that was a great relief. And I couldn't remember how we'd set it up, by the way. And and I certainly didn't have the wherewithal at that time. You know, I was absolutely broken. And so were my kids. So they were mm. my most important thing. You know, their dad had gone. So we, we got the house. We still had to go through all the litigation. And and then I met Martin, who was my second husband. And when he came to my house, he said, oh, my God, he, he'd grown up in Rhodesia. His father was professor of law at Salisbury and his mother was a journalist and they had this home called Tandara. And he said, my God, your house is just like Tandara. 
It's full of fascinating people who sit around and they don't care what they eat and drink as long as they can talk. You know, that, that was how he saw it. So he lived there for the whole of his life. And basically six months after we'd met, he was diagnosed with throat mm. cancer, stage four. And so we only had two and a half years together. And he very much wanted to get married, which we did eventually because Martin wanted it very much. And so we only had a year being married together. Right. Again, you know, it, it, it's a bit like the people who, who are in palliative care. It was joyous. It was a really special time. And because we knew... you knew it was limited. We knew it was limited. We didn't waste a nanosecond. And, and also one of the things after... Because I had cancer when I was 49 and Laurie didn't die until I was 54... And so, again, those last six years with Lorenz were so critical because we thought I might die. Right. You know, so, again, that kind of focus on what really matters and, and what is wondrous. You know, we had that. And it was, it was wonderful. So, my home now, like, it's, it's full of wonderful memories. Yeah, you're still in the same place? I'm still in the same oh, home. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. And, and when I walk in... First, after Lorenz died, it felt like I was a pee in a bucket, you know. Mm. I, I felt I'd rattled around it. But I've, I've reorganised it and, and I've finished the cupboards and the kitchen and the <laughs> walls, by the way, <laughs> over the years. And Martin was very handy. So <laughs> lots yeah. of the jobs that Lorenz would never have done, Martin did. But it's, it, it feels like I've been wrapped in a warm blanket when I walk into it. It is just this place of joy. It's really uh inspiring to hear you talk i mean that that's that is on uh, on one obvious level a very tragic story but you're talking you know incredibly uh joyously about it and i, I was listening today again I, I listened this morning to monica McInerney, and she made the comment that her life was forged with love and grief and so is mine yeah that is i think one of the things that makes you live every minute and i see myself as blessed because i've been loved by two extraordinary well, no more than two my dad my brothers yeah you know my sons by lots of wonderful human beings and and my girlfriends oh my god <laughs> so i have the best women friends on earth the day that laurie died we came back from the hospital because we had to go and identify him we came back from the hospital and four of my women friends were sitting on my front doorstep mm. And they just walked in and they started cleaning my cupboards, which I suspect they'd wanted to do <laughs> forever, by the way. But they just never left. Those first two weeks, I was never on my own. We were never on our own. And so I am, you know, I see myself not as, not as a figure of pity, but as, as someone who has been incredibly blessed. We, we can't avoid grief. We can't avoid tragedy. You don't know who it's going to hit and you don't know when it's going to hit. So the important thing is to live the best life you can, isn't it? And my dad, who was an extraordinary man, he was like the local magistrate and the local rural chair of the rural district council, chair of the housing committee, you name it, dad did it, you know. He wrote in my autograph book when I was five, a quote, which is, I shall pass through this world but once. Any good thing that I can do, let me now do it. Let me not defer it nor neglect it for I shall not pass this way again. And then underneath it, he wrote, this is how I've lived my life, Mary. I hope you will live yours in the same way. That is the most perfect end story and quote for five of my life. That's just such a lovely, you only here once. I hope to live, you know, my life the best way I can. Wonderful. Mary, there is one further question 
yes. that, that you will know because I know you've listened to lots of the other episodes is, is who would you like to hear on Five My Life next? Like Monica, I'm going to be very parochial and okay. say that this is a friend of mine and she is a friend of mine called Amanda Adrian. Amanda Adrian. Yes. She is a nurse and a lawyer like I am. Okay. And she has had an incredibly checkered career. She's now retired. And as a retired nurse and lawyer, she has actually become a painter. She's a very good artist. She's just had some exhibitions in Canberra. She also is, like me, a passionate conservationist. So we're both hugely interested in environmental issues in relation to health. And she is also the president of the local rural district fire service. Wow. So she is a dynamo. And it won't matter which bit of her life you look at, you'll be fascinated. Well, I I look forward to hearing her stories on Five My Life. And I'm going to end with a quote from Florence Nightingale that you have at the base of your emails. Yes. Which is, let us never consider ourselves finished nurses. We must be learning all our lives. Wise words, Mary. Thank you so much for sharing on Five My Life. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.